Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. I've been trying to get today's guest into the shift hot seat for the longest time. Charlene White has been a journalist for over 20 years. She was the first black woman to present the ITV News at 10 in 2014. I know, right? And it's that rare thing, a news journalist who actually sounds like a human being when she presents. Charlene has featured on the Black Power list countless times, co-presents Loose Women, and has a column in the eye paper. She also, of course, starred in last year's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Even if we look at it in terms of spending power, older women have amongst the biggest spending power in this country, and yet are consistently ignored on adverts, TV programmes, radio programmes, magazines, newspapers. It's like there's a concerted effort to eradicate us in every single shape or form, which is nonsense. Charlene joined me to talk Facing Your Fears, The Tyranny of the Ticking Clock and Surviving the Onslaught of Small Children in Your Forties. She told me about having to grow up fast to care for her siblings when her mum got cancer, the power of lifelong friendship and the enraging way serious media looks down on anything loved by women. We also talked about our yo-yo weights, learning to work the red carpet in your forties and why she wouldn't have had the first clue about menopause if not for her loose women gang. You're looking fabulous. Oh, well, these things are, because these things are filmed now, I was like, I finished the school run, and I was like, oh, let me quickly put some makeup on and do my hair so I look half decent. I'll definitely take some pictures yeah, to capture it for posterity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for coming on. It's taken us a while, hasn't it? You did this annoying thing of going in the jungle and just like, you know. <laughs> yeah, that little thing, Yeah. <laughs> When they came to you and said, do you fancy coming in the jungle, Charlene? What was your, did you immediately think yes or were you like over my dead? No, they'd asked for quite a few years and it had always been a very immediate and firm no. (laughs) I had zero intention of doing it, so the answer was always no. But then I think things sort of changed for so many of us after COVID, I think. Mm. And you sort of realised that you can't keep running away from things that you're afraid of because you learn so much about yourself when you don't do that. So I sort of figured rather than sort of saying no because I'm afraid of spiders and sleeping outside, maybe I should just give it a go and be brave. So that's why I said yes after years and years and years of saying no. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like one of those things. It's kind of actually, it's like strictly as well. It's one of those things that you feel like, oh, I'd love to do it, but I'd also hate to do it. Yeah, I... It's interesting because, you know, I've been in telly 20 years. My friends would always say, oh, you know, would you do things like I'm a celeb or would you do Strictly and stuff? And I was like, oh, gosh, immediately. It's like, oh, no, I definitely wouldn't do I'm a celeb. Oh, gosh, no, I couldn't cope with that. Definitely not. But one thing that I did learn, I'm glad I'm really, really pleased I did it because I learned that there's a whole list of things that I've been afraid of or have chosen not to do because I think I won't like them, like camping or what have you. So, you know, I've spent my entire life going, oh, God, I can't camp, I can't do any of that stuff. Oh, no, it's too mucky. Oh, Oh, no, I just can't do festivals and, like, camp with people. Oh, God, no, I can't do that. You know, not not because I'd tried it before, simply because I just thought it wasn't for me. And then you do two weeks of living outside in Australia and you realise, oh, do you know what? I just hadn't tried and I didn't know if I could cope or not. I just assumed that I couldn't. And I think it's made me a bit braver which I'm really thankful for. Do you think you've got braver as you've got older as well? 
Oh yeah, hugely. Um, you know, I always sort of think that your 20s, you spend a lot of the time being unsure about yourself. Um, am I beautiful enough? Am I thin enough? Uh, do the guys in the club like me? Why don't they like me? What should I be doing? Um, are boys interested in me? Are they not interested in me? You spend a lot of your 20s like that. In your 30s, I think things calm down a bit. Um, but I was late to meeting my partner. We didn't meet until I was in my mid-late 30s. So you spend a lot of that time, especially if you've not met someone and you don't have children, it's like, oh God, uh, the time's running out. If I don't meet someone soon, then that's it. My, you know, uh, I've reached the end and I, I can't have children and what have you. So you constantly feel like you're on this timer. Yeah. And then you get to your 40s and you're just like, oh, do you know what? It's fine. It's fine. I feel a lot surer of myself and I realise that all those things that you go through in your 20s and 30s create the person that you then hopefully fall in love with in your 40s. Yeah, that timeline that we kind of feel obliged to live by, like you've got to get to a certain point on the career ladder, you've got to find the partner, you've got to, if you want children, you've got to have them, if you try to have them, you know, it's so dominating, isn't it? It just totally takes control of everything. Well, it does. And that's the difference between girls and boys, women and men, is we do have a biological clock. There is nothing that we can do to reverse that. It is what it is. And as my 30s progress and, you know, I have friends of all ages and I was having friends in their 40s who had met their partners late, who were then struggling to have children. And I saw how much pain that caused for them and how much hurt it caused for them. You know, and that's constantly in your your head. And you think like, you know, I, I don't want to have to go through so much grief and loss in my 40s I really need to try and get this done in my 30s (laughs) and that's constant that is a constant if you want kids that's a constant in your in your head you know it's really difficult to ignore that and I've had friends who you know because that clock is ticking they've chosen to do it by themselves using donors or have sort of you know, ended up having kids with people that they knew they were never going to settle down with but they just wanted the joy of giving birth and I didn't want any of that so that's constantly in your head and it's you know it it messes with you mentally hugely yeah I mean I've definitely got friends who I watched I don't know literally grab the bloke on the bus who was like some bloke that they dumped when they were 20 just because they were like shit running out of time and you know they inevitably get divorced and for some of them, it's really traumatic. And some of them don't even care because, like you say, it was more like a means to a... It's like, I'm, yeah. I'm against the clock now. Were you feeling like that in your kind of... When you met Andy? I guess so. Like two years, was it two years before we met? That I'd sort of decided that I was going to have like a year of, of yes, really. Because I think... Um, although I had loads of fun in my 20s and in my early 30s, I was quite, I'm quite a cautious person and I think things through. I don't just like randomly do stuff. And I thought actually having a year of, of yes could probably encourage me to meet somebody because I feel more comfortable in myself and perhaps um, that confidence would shine through, I guess. And it was sort of towards that end of that year of yes that I then met him. And I think a lot of that has to do with me just kind of relaxing myself into life a bit. You know, when you spend the majority of your your 20s, you know, teenage years sort of helping to raise your two younger siblings, Mm. it takes a while before you can just relax and enjoy life without 
feeling like you've got like a load of responsibilities. Yeah, your mum died when you were 21, didn't she? And had she been, she'd been yeah. ill for a few years before that? Yeah, she um, became, well, she told me about her illness when I was 16. So, you know, I would do things like drop my brother off at school in the morning before I would then go to school. I was allowed to not go to morning assembly so I could drop him off at school first. Um, you know, and things like doing parents' evenings and stuff in my, oh my late teens and in my 20s uh, alongside my dad and stuff. But I don't know any different. Um, so friends that I was around didn't have any of those responsibilities, but I did. But I don't know what my life would have been like had I not had those responsibilities. Having that level of responsibility in my life was my normal. So um, I don't know life otherwise really. Must have made you grow up really quickly though. Oh gosh yeah I mean I would um I remember when I worked at uh, Radio 1 on 1 Extra I said to my mum that I would stay at home for as long as my siblings needed me for so when my brother then reached secondary school and I remember my uh, shift pattern for that month would always be pinned up on our notice board so that my dad would know the times and I'd be able to do drop off and be able to do pick up or I'd be around to be able Mm -hmm. to cook dinner or the times where I was having nights out so I'd be at home with the kids and he would say um go out with his friends so all of that was very heavily planned whereas I was around people who had none of that if they kind of wanted to wake up late and you know spend all day brunching or whatever (laughs) they could but my dad worked two jobs so you know he needed to know when I would be around and the kids needed that as well but then we balanced it really well I can't tell you the number of my uh, my brother's rugby tournaments on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning that I'd rock up to very much hanging (laughs) um and the the uh the parents especially the school dads would just take one look at me and they go yeah the the bacon butties are being served over there Charlie and I'm like right okay I'll just go and eat and then I'll be back because <laughs> I'd had like a really big night but I was juggling big nights out with mates with making sure I was present at my brother's rugby tournaments and stuff you know whereas I was with friends who were with me that same night and then would spend the rest of the day in bed but I had a different level of responsibility, but I don't really know any different. It must have made you really feel quite out of sync with your peers, especially like working somewhere like One Extra, which is all like young, cool kids. (laughs) Do you know what? I've been really, really lucky is I've consistently had amazing friends in my life. And testament to that very much was the night that my mum died. My friend Leona lived around the corner every night because she didn't want to go into a a respite care. Mm. She wanted to stay at home because it was easier for the kids. So our house was full every day for weeks in the final weeks of her life. And my friends would be there every single day. And my friend Leona lived around the corner who would always be the last to leave because literally he was the next road down. And we'd been at home watching Spooks that night and the BBC had some game on the red button that you could play afterwards. So we'd then be playing that till like 11 o'clock or something. And he was like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go now. And then within half an hour of him leaving, the Macmillan nurse came down to say it was time. So I'd rang him because I knew that he was awake and just say, you know, the nurse said, you know, that she's gone. And that was it. That was the entire conversation. And bearing in mind, I was sort of 21... Yeah, I was 21 then, almost 22 at that point. And a lot of it is a blur, but I remember the doctor turning up and then obviously he had to come and get the body and all of that stuff. And I just remember opening up my living room door and there were about 15 of my friends, 15, 20 of my friends who'd all turned up. 
and they were there because they just wanted to be there for us and what have you and was keeping Joshua uh, occupied and stuff I remember going upstairs to bed with Josh because it's all a bit overwhelming for him and I must have fallen asleep on the bed with him because it was quite late and I got up in the morning went downstairs and they'd been in our spare room and found sheets and blankets and pillows and laid them all out in the living room and they'd all spent the night oh that's so lovely because they wanted to make sure that I wasn't there by myself in the morning I love those guys to the bottom of my heart and they're still my closest and bestest friends now 20 years later because you can't possibly take that level of kindness for granted and I will remember that to the day I die because they didn't have to come over at one o'clock in the morning they didn't have to stay the night they wanted to because they didn't want the family to be alone um you know which is beautiful and it still is beautiful um and yeah I consider myself very lucky but I've consistently had friends in my life that are taking on through work and just generally in life who have been like gold to be honest and I feel very blessed to have that I feel quite teary (laughs) (laughs) I always feel quite quite teary when I think about it I just think I'm just very very lucky it's such that's such a lovely thing to do isn't it it's so it's just lovely do you feel like your friendships now were kind of informed by that like network that you had back then? God, for the last well over 20 years, that group of friends and I have done Christmas Eve dinner. So our lives have changed loads. We've moved to different parts of London and outside of London. And yet Christmas Eve although we did it the day before Christmas Eve this year, but we always make sure that we always meet up because it's it's important to have that connection in our lives. You can, you can make friends as your life goes on. Of course you can. But those who you meet at, you know, at the very start of, of adulthood, I think, those are the ones that I think really know you the best as you're sort of leaving your teenage life and you're becoming like a whole person. You know, those friends that were in my living room, I've been friends with them since I was, gosh, uh, there's a couple of them since I was 11 and the rest of them since I was sort of 15, 16. They know the best of me and they know the worst of me. They know my deepest, darkest secrets. Um, I've cried with them. I have argued with them. We've had an amazing time. And you have to make sure, I think, that you keep those connections as your life goes on. But, you know, in terms of, you know, later on in life through work and and, and stuff. I think, I always like to think that irrespective of where I've met my friends, if you throw them all together in one room, they will all find a common thread and they will all get on, I think. I know of people who sort of have friends from different parts of their life and are a bit like, oh no, you know, I wouldn't put those people in a room with those people. I just, I just don't think they would get on. Whereas one thing I've always been very sure of, doesn't matter where I've, I've met a friend, if I throw them in a room with everybody else, um, they'll be completely comfortable and they will talk and they will laugh. I think I tend to take on maybe very similar people as friends maybe, I don't know. But I just like good and nice people. Um, and if you're a good and nice person then you'll, you'll find conversation with anybody. That kind of incredibly like organised planning that you had to do when you first started work, did that turn you into a planner or did it actually turn you the other way once you were free of it? Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, a mass, I'm, I'm a massive procrastinator and I always have been. I always have a very short attention span, which I always have done. 
uh, it features on just about all my school reports yeah. that I have a short attention span and things, you know, my work and my school life would be so much better if I would just stick to things. <laughs> um, I, I still have a very short attention span and you can give me a deadline. So I had a deadline yesterday, which was given to me three and a half weeks ago. And I was sat in a coffee shop at nine o'clock yesterday morning writing it before the deadline. Yeah, I get that. I had to hand it in by end of play yesterday. Although I can be a planner to a certain extent, there are parts of my personality that haven't changed with age in at all. And I'm all right with that, to be mm. honest. You know, having a short attention span as a kid they see as being a negative. For me as an adult, it's I know myself well. And if I'm feeling bored about something, I'll just find something else to do to tag on to the end, which is probably why I work so much, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing at all, but I definitely, I can see that school report that, now if Charlene would just apply herself, yeah, 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 there's a lot of that, I'd get really excited about things, I was was saying to my friends that I'm the ideas person, I'm just the ideas person, but it's the follow through really bad at, so if I could just come up with an idea in the team, but then the team kind of does the really nitty gritty bits you know a project would be fine but you're kind of relying on me to do the nitty gritty bits the project would just never get finished no I I remember like oh god years ago when I was a baby editor being sent on a management training course and they did one of those psychology tests I don't know if you've ever done them where they determine your psychology type your type um I think I was a plant which is the kind of intransigent creative in the corner and um at the end of that session the trainer said well there's going to be a problem because nobody in this room is a complete finisher. So, like, basically, you've got to do this project and there's not one person who's going to make sure it gets done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically my life, yeah. And, and, and Andy says it all the time, I'll start projects in the house full of lots of energy and enthusiasm and creativity and invariably they'll end up half done because yeah. I just, my brain just gets bored I just wander off and do something else. And the original project literally will just be left in the house completely unfinished. Um, But I know that about myself. And would I say I've tried to change it? Uh, No, because I know it's not going to last. If it was going to change, it would have changed already. I'm, what, 43 this year. If I was suddenly going to become a finisher, it would have happened before now. But also, it's like, it's probably made you, given what's happened in the time you've been working in the media and I've been working in the media, it's just like totally changed. It's unrecognizable. I mean, certainly since I started, but probably since you started, unrecognizable in lots and lots of good ways, as well as some not so good ways. And it's like adapting to that. A lot of people haven't. A lot of people have just vanished. Yeah, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of, God, I've been IT, ITV News for so either 15 or 16 years, one or the other. I was trying to work out which one it was yesterday. I can't remember. But in that time, you know, we have seen people come and go. And a lot of that is technology-based as well. I remember, you know, working with reporters who were very, very anti writing up their stories, writing up the website, for example, or writing mm. a, a blog piece on you know, a particular moment in time, for example. You know, I do remember them saying things like, this isn't, this isn't supposed to be my job. I'm not supposed to 
mm. write about stories. I just broadcast stories. No one's got any interest in in me updating stories on Twitter or writing blogs about the stories that I'm on. A real determination to work against technology and against modernising. Um, and you can really only do that for, for so long. We are in the communication business. And I think it's really important to communicate in ways that people are consuming mm. news and content. And there have been so many positive changes with that. And yes, there have been negative changes with that. But we can't ignore the fact that it has changed. Mm. Um, I think it's a real shame when that battle and that fight happens and people sort of fight against those technology changes because all it's doing is it's doing a disservice to a whole generation of consumers who are increasingly not um, instinctively gravitating towards us because we haven't always been in the places where they have been consuming stuff. And I think that's a real shame because every single generation deserves to, you know, have news with impartiality and be allowed to make their minds up about particular subjects or topics or or situations and that is hugely important to me yeah I mean I think I remember when Twitter first took off and I remember there were other there were some editors who were like oh it's just another job you know and I'm now looking back at it now I just think no because what it did was it gave yes it gave the readers access to you 24 7 but it gave you access to them you know, you could talk to the readers all day, every day, if that was what you wanted. And that's just like a massive opportunity that you could not take, but that was not going to be taken away. And the way that, you know, when I worked on Cosmo, the original editor of Cosmo, Helen Gurley-Brown, I remember her saying to me, well, yeah, I got loads and loads of readers' letters, but mainly I ignored them, which you could do back in the 60s and 70s. But, yeah. you know, the reality is that what social media has done is it's, you can't, you know, you have to be part of the conversation not just go this is what I think and you can just like it or not and I, I think it's been interesting to watch the people who've embraced that and the people who haven't embraced it and you obviously really have well I also just sort of think that you know without having any kind of way to see what the audience thinks of something or a reader thinks of something or what the audience wants more of you know, you have a, a situation within broadcast and print media where it was simply the opinions of one individual that would fill a magazine or would fill a news programme. And within broadcast media, that tended to be male, older and and white. And because there was no way to sort of know what it was that your audience wanted. So you'll just give them what you want, essentially. But we have an opportunity now where the floodgates have been opened and there's more of an understanding of exactly what consumers want, for instance. You know, they don't want news programmes that are solely with male presenters, male reporters and male contributors. They don't want that because that's only representing half the population. What they want uh, are broadcast news programs which fairly represent the audiences that we are broadcasting to and that's only fair and that's only right i will always see it as a huge shame that that has only happened through the power of social media for example if social media didn't exist 
those changes would have been even slower than they were in the first place. And and I do see it as being a positive. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you were the first, astonishingly, you were the first black woman to present the news, weren't you, on ITV, News at 10? News at 10, yeah. I mean, that's like... Because I read that and then I went down a rabbit hole to read loads of other places. I thought that can't be right because that was 2014. I mean, that's that's just bonkers. Well, I, I didn't know at the time either. And I'm really, really, really pleased I didn't know on the day because I was nervous enough as it yeah. was in the first place, to be honest. And I remember when um, my boss, Robin Elias, called me to ask me if I would cover a shift on News at 10. And I'd been at a war to do all day, so I'd had a lot of bubbly by the time he rang me. And I was very confused as to what he was asking me to do. I was like, what, you want me to present news at 10? Are you serious? And then I just couldn't get my head around it. And I sort of had to say to him, look, I have to apologise, but I have been at a war to do all day. I've got another gin and tonic in my hand. <laughs> Can I come into your office tomorrow and we'll just talk about this properly because I am really confused. And then I went into his office the next day and he said, no, I, it was a genuine offer where there's a gap in the, in the roster and we'd like you to, to fill the gap. And it blew my mind. I, I, it, I always, I plan things career-wise and that was never in my plan at that particular time in my life. And I always feel like I'm really lucky to work with the team that I work with. We always say we're small and we're mighty compared to other news organisations. Mm. And every single person in that newsroom the day that I did it were so unbelievably supportive and encouraging and excited. Julie Etchingham, the day before, had taken me down to the studio to talk through her routines, to get me to read a few links into packages and to familiarise myself with what it was like to sit, because it was double-headed at the time, to sit alongside other Alistair or Mark, you know, to and just to make sure that I felt okay. You know, I, I, I'm so lucky to have so many kind people around. It was such a kind thing for her to do. And then on the day, I'd sort of have people coming up to my desk and going, You'll, you can do it, you'll be amazing, don't be nervous, which of course made me even more nervous. And Mark was incredible that night and so supportive and was like, you'll be fine, just breathe and you'll be completely fine, you've got this. And then one of the uh, graphics guys, Michael, brought in a camera because he said, this is a moment you need to remember. Um, So I'm going to take pictures for you so you can remember it. And then sort of (laughs) finished doing these at 10 and the entire gallery just started clapping and cheering, um, which is incredible. And it wasn't until the next day that our former chief exec was visiting and he came over to my desk. No, it was two days later, he came over to my desk and he said, you know you made history the other night. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, you made history. You're the first black woman to ever present ICV News at 10. And that's the first time I knew. I just assumed that there had been someone before me. You know, it was 2014. Yeah. So I assumed that there... It's not like it was 1950 or something, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was just... Really, I, was, I was really shocked. Um, but I I do feel honoured to work somewhere that believed in me and I think a lot of times believed in me more than I believed in myself and that is a really good example of when they believed in me more than I believed in myself because I never in a million I wasn't pushing for that because never in a million years would I have thought that I would be able to do that but they saw something that I didn't and I'm forever grateful for that Do you feel like since that time, representation on our screens of black women, older women, 
black men has improved consistently as opposed to, oh, just ticking a box and moving on? Um, I think Luce is a really good example of how things have changed and have been consistent in that change. You know, with having, being very, very mindful about representation in a, within a group of, of women in terms of age, um, sexuality, in terms of race, all of those things, a disability, you know, they've made a very concerted effort to make sure that those changes are done and they are consistent, not just being a one-off. And I think Lisa's a very, very, very good example of that. I think there are other programmes um, <laughs> that could follow in their footsteps um, and see it as a, as a blueprint, perhaps. Because we're also talking about, oh gosh, there's differences in class, there's differences mm. in where we all live in the country. It's such a beautiful tapestry of Britain that has represented every single weekday afternoon on daytime TV, which is a pretty beautiful thing to witness which is a very visual representation of where TV has changed for that programme and the lifespan of that programme. Um, in terms of black men, there's a lot of work to do. In terms of older women, there are so many programmes in which older women are not represented in any shape or form. You know, it, you know even if we look at it in terms of spending power, oh, older exactly. women have amongst the biggest spending power in this country and yet are consistently ignored on adverts, TV programmes, radio programmes, magazines, newspapers. So there's a concerted effort to eradicate us in every single shape or form, which is nonsense when all the figures show we mm. are the ones with the spending power. So it, it just, it makes no sense to me. I would say on screen there have been, yes, there have been changes. Off screen and those who hold the power, um, a lot of that hasn't. You know, I sort of feel like if those changes don't happen, then it's not meaningful change because it's all kind of, it's just wallpaper. It's just, mm. you know, pasting over cracks as opposed to changing the foundation. And it's that that is very, very important. And that's the thing, that's where the battle is in so many organisations that they consistently fight against that, you know, letting go of the reins a little bit more. I think when that, when those sorts of things change and that becomes the norm, then yeah, I think maybe that's when we see a real, a real change in the stuff that we consume. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like it's the same with advertising. Older women have got the spending power and the people booking the ads, particularly in planning ad campaigns, are largely young white men. And so when well, those two things disconnect, you might see a, a kind of a change occasionally. So, for instance, we, you know, we've managed to start to get the conversation going about menopause um, over the last couple of years. Um, and so then beauty brands start relabeling their products with menopause on them and then they start booking some campaigns but it's still very niche very token it's not you know it's not like well women in their 50s drive cars for instance yeah you know, it's just like it drives me up the, it drives me absolutely up the wall and to not get that disconnect is incredible to me and I I was at um Cannes last year during the advertising festival and one of the things I sort of said is actually you put knowledge in those upper echelons of organisations 
And when you see that change happen, it really will be a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I used baked beans as an example, you know, with a big Caribbean Jamaican breakfast, seasoned beans are a staple. So growing up, I never just had beans as just beans, you know, with breakfast, with your, your sausages, your bacon, your fried dumplings, you know, your planting. It was never just beans heated up. You'd cut up your your onions, you'd fry up your onions, you'd then add the beans, you'd do it in a bit of butter, you'd then add, add your beans, lots and lots and lots of black pepper, sometimes little slices of scotch bonnet, pepper, then that's what you'd serve with your breakfast. But I've never seen a Heinz beans advert that has included that in, in yeah. there. Whereas every single Jamaican Caribbean household in this country that's how we had beans it wasn't until my latter years and having you know tea at other people's houses or what have you that I realized that other people just heat up the beans and put it on toast I was like oh so that's a thing just having it with nothing else you know and it's that sort of knowledge about other cultures that you can bring to advertising so then you have other people sort of think oh is that how other people have beans you know, but it's that knowledge mm. that you can bring to the table, which I think is hugely important when you're trying to do things differently and not just changing who you have on the screen, as opposed to making something from a position of knowledge that is genuinely different. Yeah, and until they change that, you know, right at the root, it doesn't really matter what they put yeah. on the leaves, you know, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, I like that analogy. I like that analogy. I might use that, Sam. That's all right. It's yours. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about about loose women and the fact that like you were just saying about the the care that they take to be representative in the in the presenters and yet they get absolutely fuck all credit for that there's a thing about women on telly <laughs> yeah <laughs> but and I remember seeing when you took the job there was a bit of like snootiness around like oh she's a new, she's a news presenter what's she going to loose women for and it's like, there's definitely a thing, isn't there, that if it's something that women might be interested in, like, God forbid that we can be interested in lipstick and read without moving our lips. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it seems to just blow everybody's minds, really. It's, it's a show that's loved by millions across the country, men and women. But because it's women at the helm, it's not taken in as serious light as, say, the Today programme, for example, or, or Newsnight, or um, oh, you know, anything that's seen as highbrow current affairs. We're not seen in the same light. And yes, I do believe that is because it's, it's a programme that's purely driven by, by women. You know, we do, we do serious news topics, but in a slightly different way that is engaging for an audience that's that's tuning in every lunchtime. We're doing it in a way that's perhaps more palatable for viewers, in a way that, you know, we break things down for them so that they can understand particular uh, topics and subjects and then listen to incredible debates surrounding particular um, subjects and topics. And yet we aren't held in the same regard as as other programmes, other programmes that have men involved. <laughs> um, you take the men out of the equation and suddenly what we do isn't serious enough. I've always seen the beauty of Loose. And yeah, there were those sorts of people that were like, 
you've ruined your news career. If you start doing Loose Women, you've ruined your news. How are you supposed to present a programme like Loose Women and then rock up doing evening news? You know, it's ridiculous. You would have ruined your credibility, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've spent my entire career not listening to the thoughts of others, to be honest, because I know me and I know what I want out of my career and I know what my capabilities are. And a lot of that stems from a position of snootiness, really, and there's this thing people have got such snootiness around news like you can only be one thing of your news because people won't take you seriously otherwise and and they won't listen to what you're saying if you do anything outside of of of, of news people just won't believe you anymore but we're living in an era where people are consuming news in all different sectors of society online on tv on newspaper everywhere people are consuming news and it goes back to you go to where they are. And I have never been one to sign up to that there's only one way of doing news. You know, a lot of my grounding was at Radio 1 and 1 Extra, who fundamentally did news very differently and broadcast to a section of society, young people, 16 to 24-year-olds, who at that point were completely ignored when Mm. it came to uh, news. So Newsbeat and and 1 Extra News was a lifeline, you know, so they didn't feel forgotten when news was concerned because they deserve to understand what's happening in uh, in the news. And so doing least for me was almost an extension of that, yeah. really. It's, I would like to be where, where people are consuming current affairs. And one of those places is loose. I don't care if people think that my news career is over as a result of doing it, because I fundamentally think that's false and completely mm. untrue. But if they want to think that, that's up to them. I just chose not to sign up to it at all. Yeah, I mean, it's the same, like, women's magazines got treated the same way. I mean, I remember interviewing Tony Blair and all the kind of the newspapers were like, oh, what's he doing that for? And it's the same when, you know, politicians come on this morning or loose or they're just like, oh, why are they doing that? Yeah, it makes my, it was like me rage. Wanna- ring fence everybody and it's like unless you are you know unless you're you're a man who wears expensive suits with perfectly coiffed hair (laughs) who speaks a very certain way who hangs out with very particular people only you are the people that can actually give the news and only you are the people that 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 viewers will believe anybody else no it's just like bargain basement or something and I, and I think we've had so many decades of news being treated that way. I think in a modern society, that's what's ended up working against us. Because you have a generation of young consumers who's like, nah, that's not what I want. I know, I know there's more out there than that. That's not what I want. And I think that has done us a disservice. And yes, changes are, are, are happening. But some things still stay the same. You know accents regional accents Mm. all those sorts of things it all comes into you know that's why steph mcgovern would get horrific online abuse when she was doing bbc breakfast and doing business because her accent was seen as not being um sensible enough to be presenting business news on the bbc it was seen as not being posh enough it was seen as being too common all of these things are completely wrong and yet they've been allowed to fester. Yeah, so was Loose, doing Loose, was it part of your, you're a career planner, if not a life planner, was Loose part of that plan? <laughs> um, part of my plan was always to find a way to marry news with daytime in some shape or form. Because, you know, by doing broadcast news, 
you've got experience of doing live telly every single day. And I think if people see you as a news presenter in a slightly different guise on a slightly different show, it shows a side to you that perhaps they will then gravitate towards when you're doing news. Loose for me helps to break down any barriers that people may feel they have when it comes to a news presenter. That yes, we watch them on the TV, but we don't really know them. And Mm. I, I believe we're living in an era where people want to feel like they know who is talking to them. And that's not just about news, it's in so many other different programs as well and I don't think news is exempt in that I think you have to be careful Mm. I think that too much ruins it but you have to be very mindful so I am always sort of balancing on a tightrope in terms of the things I choose to do and the things I choose not to do because news is the thing that I love the most and I never ever want to stop doing that in my life I love it but yes finding a way to marry daytime and more relaxed telly with what I do with news yes I mean for for years I believed it would be possible you know it may have taken a while to make it happen but it's happened at a really good time in in my life I've got both my kids now I'm not having any more you know and I think once you've reached that especially that stage in your life as a parent where you know you're not going to be going through like the birthing process or anything again it's kind of done then you're able to look at what it is that you want to do with your career and what time you have for various different things you know balancing work and home but also looking ahead to the other things you want to do without sort of taking a massive break for babies so what do you want to do next what's next on the plan Oh, what's next on the plan? Well, I've got news. I've got loose. I'm loving writing and doing my column. So I'd love to do Mm. a bit more writing. You know, because for me, that's where journalism stemmed from, was writing and telling stories. So I'd love to sort of do a bit more of that. I sort of feel like at the moment, I am in a really good, balanced place with all of that. You know, I have a, a long day on a Thursday, short days on a Monday. I get to hang out with the kids on a Wednesday. I could probably in the future just learn to balance it a little bit better, to be perfectly honest. There's always that panic as a parent of am I around enough? But I have got a brilliant partner and he's amazing. He's able to work from home on days where I'm not here. So the kids will always have one or the other of us, which works well. But you always have that panic of, am I around enough? But I had two working parents, so that's my normal. And I sort of think, well, I think I turned out all right. So hopefully they will as well. Yeah. I mean, as you've kind of entered your 40s, you've kind of, if anything, you've become more visible, haven't you? Because you've started being on the red carpet. And I've definitely seen pictures of you looking really glamorous at Vogue parties and... How is that? Because that's a bit of a change, isn't it? It's a massive change. You know, working news, we don't really do glam. Yeah. You know, we sort of, you know, we, we sort of drag something out of the wardrobe, throw it on and turn up to work, usually in trainers and jeans, but, but a smart top. That's usually how I go to work every day. We don't really do glam. It's been a whole new world for me. And I've had to learn a lot about what suits me, what doesn't, what colours suit me, what do, what what colours don't. You know, how to stand on a red carpet, how to use your hips on a red carpet, huh? how to find your red carpet smile. Give us some tips. I could do with knowing that. Not that I'm ever Oh my God, I have no idea. 
I, I still haven't nailed it. I look at red carpet pictures and I'm like, mm, yeah, I didn't, I didn't nail that one. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I can always see when I look uncomfortable. I haven't nailed looking comfortable, to be honest. And look at Judy. Judy has a position and a stance that she stands in when she does her mm. pictures. And I always think that she looks masterful and strong and gorgeous. She exudes confidence. Just looks, oh my gosh, and just beauty. It was like, Judy, you need to teach me. Because <laughs> I haven't quite nailed it. I still think I look like a rabbit in the headlights. But this whole thing is only, what, two and a half years old. And I sort of think maybe at one point I'll get it. But at the moment, it's really not happening. Do you feel but I have fun. <laughs> I have fun with the girls. Do you feel like you've got more or less confident in, kind of in yourself and body confidence as you've got older? I think I've become more confident, mostly because I'm not dressing for anybody but me. You know, my weight has always fluctuated, especially since I had kids. Um, and it, it's like a yo-yo. It goes up and down continuously, which I think happens with a lot of women in their in their forties, mm. especially when they're peri or if they're menopausal. It, yeah. just, it happens, and mine does just go constantly. But I choose to not let other people's opinions of that bother me. You know, if I were to allow the opinions of everybody that has an opinion online about me get to me, I'd find it very difficult to wake up in the morning yeah. and go into work and be on screen and do what I do. But I think, and it's going to sound really weird, but I I feel like I was lucky enough to have that abuse in large numbers quite early on. So it then means that when it happens now, you know, I have my suit of armour and it really just doesn't affect me uh, at all. I shouldn't have to have reached that point, but I did reach that point where it just doesn't really. I just, I honestly, I don't search for my name. You know, I don't, if I'm on, if I'm on, loose or what have you if stuff comes up and people don't like the things that I've said I always do loose and then go on to a news shift my head by the time loose is finished is very firmly in my news shift so I just don't care and I think yes I don't I think that does come from a position of 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 confidence that wasn't always there where the socials were concerned but I've had to learn to do that because you can't change the opinions of others and as much as we'd love to be in a position where you know we stop people from being mean online (laughs) there are people who are simply not going to stop being mean online so I then have to choose to not give them the power to upset me so that's what I choose to do is these people who use fake names you probably are not if you were really happy in your life you wouldn't be saying things that you do about other people so as a result of unhappiness in their life they're taking it out on somebody that they've never met and don't know so I'm not going to allow that to upset me totally you mentioned Perry just now where are you at with all that is it on the cards yet or not yet yeah I am yeah I've been loved like I've done my tests and all of that stuff and yeah I am I can be in a freezing cold room at night and wake up and just be covered in in sweat you know I've got I've got the hormone patches and stuff like that you know that is a very good reason why I feel very blessed to do loose because it's stuff that I would never have thought about Mm. it's stuff that I've never had conversations about you know I spoke to my my aunt about it the first time we had a conversation about it on loose and talked to her about her own menopause journey which was really hard hers was very hard but she never really spoke to us about it like so many other millions of women up and down the country yeah I was gonna say yeah there's it's just this you know and that story's repeated over and over and over and over again but I feel lucky to work on a show 
that's very honest about it and where we help each other and we talk about it amongst each other, which hopefully encourages other women to do the same. Yeah, I mean, you can't really work alongside Nadia, can you, and not be fully aware of what's going on. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Um, She very, you know, she's very, very good at breaking it down for those of us who are sort of starting our journey, um, which I am really thankful for. And I really do hope that the honesty that we talk about, we talk about it on the programme and amongst each other. I really do hope that that's replicated in other friendships and other workplaces up and down the country. And I hope that all of us are now realising that dealing with it in silence isn't the only way. I don't know whether you can answer this with your news head on, maybe you can't, but how did you feel about the government response to the menopause and workplace report? You know, one thing that we've spoken about on Loose, and we do continue to talk about, is is the way in which women's health tends to be disregarded and has been for generations. And I guess we all sort of sit in hope that at some point our voices are heard and understood when it comes to our health. Very diplomatic. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> right, I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end now. What's your emotional age? <laughs> uh, my emotional age, I'd probably put about 32. Why 32? Because I popped out of my 20s, so I'm not so like down on, on, on life and unsure of myself. But I also still like being very, very silly. And I keep feeling like I am constantly running away from middle age. So I'll put myself at 32. Cool. Um, Give us a book recommendation. So it can just be something that's always been significant to you or it can just be something good that you read recently. Yeah, recently, um, my mate M&A, who I went to school with, um, has written a book called Natural Wellness Every Day. And she sent that to me after I came out of the of the jungle, just as a way, just like a book of, you know, she'd written it, but a book for me to sort of read through and sort of, you know, understand that the calmness that I felt after being in isolation before I went into the jungle, that it's possible to feel that calm, even amongst the mentalness and the busyness and the stressfulness of my everyday life. And I'm really appreciative to her for that. Has it worked? No, no I'm joking. Parts of it. <laughs> Parts of it, yes. Parts of it, yes. Because I'm eating differently since I came out. I'm eating very differently. And I am taking time out for myself a bit more. And I'm spending time understanding food and wellness probably more than I did before. Because I do understand that if I understand myself, my body and my wellness better, that does have an impact in my everyday life. I become less stressed. I deal with situations a lot better and I'm not so tired. What advice would you give younger women? That things get better. You think that situations in your life, especially in your 20s, that nothing will ever change and things will always be the same and life will not get any better from the position that you're in. But time can change a lot and things do get better. Whatever position that you're in where could be a low point, a really low point and it could be a relationship that's not working or you feel like no one will ever love you or that no one will ever settle down and that, that everybody's life is better than yours I think you always have to remember that things will get better definitely when I was approaching 40 I felt like I kind of you know looked up at work and then there was nobody it was like where are all the older women gone 
And I see that a, a lot on social media. I see slightly younger women just saying, like, even though we're all like talking as loud as we can, saying that they're approaching 40 with trepidation. Now you're 43, what would you say to them? Oh, being in your 40s rocks. There's nothing to be scared of, mindful of. I think that every generation feels slightly differently about being in their 40s. And I think we are definitely a generation that don't feel like perhaps our mothers did in their 40s. I still feel younger. I still, on occasion, just want to go out clubbing and dance and have debauched nights out. That, for me, hasn't changed. I still want all of those things. And just because I'm in my 40s, why should I not be doing them? I was doing it on Saturday night. Don't think about your 40s as being the end of life as you know it. It, in so many different ways, can be the beginning of something incredible because your mind is far more settled. Who's your old bird role model? Oh, my auntie Eleanor. The woman's 71 years old in a couple of months. And she's in the gym virtually every day. She goes for runs several times a week. She's going swimming twice a week. She looks incredible. The two of us have shared and swapped clothes for decades. We were sharing and swapping clothes even when I was in my 20s. She's a woman that refuses to buy into the idea that you reach a certain age, you should be wearing certain clothes or behaving in a certain way. You know, she's in the latest DM boots. She is a massive fan of shopping in cars. You know, she can rock a jumpsuit better than any woman in her 40s. She will forever be my old bird role model because she has consistently refused to sign up to the idea that just because you're a certain age, you should look a certain way and behave in a certain way. She has never, ever, ever signed up to that. She's probably got a lot to do with the reason why I feel the way that I do in my 40s. Yeah, the woman's amazing. Sounds like we should all be a bit more Auntie Eleanor to me. Yeah, I keep telling her she needs to join the socials. People need to understand the joy and fabulousness that is my Auntie Eleanor because the the woman is just, oh, she's amazing. She needs to get herself on Insta, definitely. Yes! Or TikTok, probably. (laughs) Go straight to TikTok. (laughs) What's your superpower? My superpower, I love to laugh. And... I like being around people and bringing joy. I like that. I can be the silly person in the office. You know, I refuse to believe that just because you work in news, you have to be super serious all the time. I like being a bit of a joker. And I would say that is my my superpower. I'm not what people assume I am. Last one. How many fucks do you give? Oh my God, zero. Zero. Genuinely don't care. You know, the horrible things that people can say, the horrible words that people can throw in my direction, I literally give zero. It's brilliant. Thank you so much, Charlene. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thanks, Sam. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift.